This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, a Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Kate Andrews, our economics editor. Today, P&O Ferries have sacked 800 staff, uh, with workers told in a video call that today was the final day of their employment, and since then the situation has escalated. Kate, can you bring us up to date with what's been happening? So, P&O Ferries have instructed private security to head to their ferries and possibly remove staff who are refusing to disembark after this video message was sent, sent out to roughly 800 employees informing, informing them that they were more or less losing their jobs. It's an absolute disaster for P&O Ferries. I mean, the PR of this alone is just utterly disgusting. You know, you have people reporting that they were let go in this horrible way via video. Now they're being threatened to be basically manhandled off of these boats. And unions are suggesting that they have hired workers from overseas and plan to replace them, presumably, at a lower hourly cost. So nothing about this, I think, um, is screams, you know, in P&O's favor. I think another problem for P&O is that they're reported to have taken 15 million pounds of furlough money during the pandemic. And I think you're going to have a lot of people out there who will be sympathetic to the story and the images, but even more frustrated that a company would take millions and millions of pounds of taxpayer money at the toughest of times in the pandemic and then turn around and fire their staff now. The last thing I would highlight, though, is I I think that this is a reminder that the very low unemployment figures that we just got this week back down to pre-pandemic levels of 3.9% are by no means guaranteed. The furlough scheme did save a lot of jobs, a lot of livelihoods that probably wouldn't be there now if if there hadn't been so much government subsidy. But, um, you know, P&O Ferries, I don't think, have much of a defense in the way that they've acted. Their argument is, you know, we've, we've lost tens of millions of pounds, possibly up to 100 million pounds throughout the crisis. And our business just won't be viable if we don't make cuts and changes and take change. So, uh, you know, this won't be the only business to be making that argument that, you know, they did get through the pandemic, but that doesn't mean that times are good. Times are actually very, very tough. And with the cost of living squeeze impacting individuals as well as businesses, it is a reminder that whilst we did get through the pandemic fairly unfazed by higher unemployment, it doesn't mean it's here to stay. James, in terms of the politics of this, in the past, I mean, it's been reported the government blocked laws to curb fire and rehire. Is this going to bring that back to a live debate? Well, I mean, this isn't fire and rehire. This seems to be just fire. But I think the point here that Kate rightly identifies is that the government has skin in the game because public money was used through the furlough scheme to keep these people employed during the pandemic when either, I'm not sure whether there were no ferry services running or or very, the business was certainly not economically viable during the height of those COVID restrictions. And as you say, Katie, that is going to put pressure on the government to say, well, you know, why did you not, you know, why were there not conditions that don't allow firms to take furlough money and then behave like this? I think that that is going to be a a, a controversy. I mean, that is, and it is a difficult thing coming for the government. Uh, the government is tonight saying that it feels that these staff have been treated very poorly, which they clearly have. I, I think it is difficult until you know a bit more about the circumstances to kind of, and it's very easy to talk about a kind of immediate legislative response that shouldn't allow this to happen. But 
one of the reasons why the UK has such a low unemployment rate is its flexible labour market. And I think you, I think you should wait to find out a bit. I don't think I know enough about the details of the PNO case to say what the right legislative response should be. I think though one thing that is clearly true, which I think actually applies to any company that took furlough money, is if you took furlough money, the public paid to keep your workplace. You have a you have a duty to run your business in such a way when it comes to how much you pay your executives, how much dividends you pay your shareholders, that reflects the public support that you received as an employer during the pandemic. One quick point on that, though. I would just caution about retrospectively trying to apply certain rules to companies who took the furlough money, right? No, I, don't think, I think this is a moral obligation. Exactly, exactly. And I think it's good if companies like P&O get bad publicity for taking millions of pounds of taxpayer money and then fire their workers. But the whole point of the furlough scheme is that it was designed in days. Companies took it without having to make any promises, and I think that was quite right. So we shouldn't retrospectively then be like, and that's where you can pay shareholders, and that's where you can pay a CEO. They just need to be thinking about these things because the public are going to care when these stories come out. I, I think it is also, this is an example of where consumer behaviour can really affect how the company has behaved, right? This is this is a consumer-facing business, right? And P&O, yes, they carry a, 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 a good amount of lorry freight, but they make a lot of money out of passenger journeys on holidays. If people basically say, we're not going to book with P&O because they treat their staff in this way, that will have a really severe effect on p and bottom line and will make other companies think twice about behaving like this in future. Now, in other news, interest rates have increased for the third time in four months. Ultimately, Kate, this is the Bank of England trying to deal with the cost of living. Yeah, so they're now finally trying to curb inflation. And as you say, Katie, they have started lifting interest rates over the past few months. By historical measures, we're still at ultra low rates. They've raised it to 0.75%, which is where we were going into the pandemic. So we're back to that pre-pandemic level. The problem for the Bank of England is that it was six months ago that they were still insisting that these price rises were transitory, that they were going to be temporary. And when inflation was significantly lower and estimated to stay lower, they weren't taking action. Now you have the Bank of England itself estimating uh, inflation peaking at 8%. If you speak to officials in Whitehall, they're preparing for double-digit figures, and they're also preparing for sustained inflation, something around, say, 7 or 8% in the years to come. That is very hard to tame, as Friedrich Hayek famously said in his Tiger by the Tail pamphlet, you know, once the tiger is set free, it becomes, I'm paraphrasing very much here, you, you can't put it back in its box. You can't put the cat back in the bag. So we're going to have this double whammy of relatively high inflation, I mean, really quite painful high inflation, higher prices, and rising interest rates, which a lot of people are not prepared for. They will have been borrowing money, specifically thinking about mortgages, thinking that interest rates were going to stay low forever. And and even them going up slightly, a lot of people won't be prepared for. And the government is about to get a very rude awakening. Thankfully, Chancellor Rishi Sunak has been aware that he might have to pay a lot more money to service the UK's debt. But we're talking about billions and billions of pounds that the Treasury will have to find if inflation and interest rates go up even marginally. Um, These are very difficult economic times. And a lot of this is being made worse by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what's going to happen with energy prices there. But we cannot pretend that that is the reason prices are going up. They were going up long before Russia invaded Ukraine. It is a consequence of two years of shutting down global economies and reopening them. And the most prominent central bankers for a long time turned a blind eye to this. Now they're trying to play catch up. And that's a really tough thing to do. Now, James, on Wednesday evening, the government unveiled its Inclusion Britain strategy, which is 
its strategy in response to the race report that came out last year, which was pretty con- controversial at the time. What's in this uh, strategy? So, I mean, the, the, the report is then the strategy essentially endorses the Sewell report into ethnic disparities. And, and in terms of, and I think it charts, I think actually, a healthy way for the debate about race in Britain. I mean, too often the debate in Britain is polarised between people on the right who want to say, well, there's no problem at all, and people on the left who want to say that the British state and society are institutionally racist. I think both of those statements are false. I think what this report does is begin to say, look, there are clearly... British society is not institutionally racist. That doesn't mean there isn't racism in Britain. But the, the obstacles facing different minority groups are clearly different and so you need a kind of nuanced approach i think it's very interesting that dfe are going to look into a do a report looking at why some ethnic minority groups do so well in the school system and to see what can be learned from their experiences so you can kind of try and spread best practice i also think there's some uh, small policies that could make a, uh, a big difference I mean, you know for example one, one one is on on hair and both pointing out that kind of Afro hair is often quite hard to reconcile with the uniform policies of certain schools. These policies weren't devised in a in a in a racist manner, but they unintentionally have the effect of making people feel uncomfortable or giving people disciplinary issues. I think another good example of a small change that can make a big difference is that only around half of suspects in custody uh, accept the offer of a lawyer. I think in part that is because people have an idea that you know that, that a lawyer paid for by the state will be working for the state, not them, or that the law is racist. I mean, this often leads people who would be much better off pleading guilty, getting this thing resolved with very quickly without even going to court in, in several cases, end up in a spiral that ends up with them receiving a custodial sentence and a criminal record. So, I mean, there are changes that can be done. But you've just been, Katie, to the, to the launch event to hear Kemi Badnock, uh, the Equalities Minister, talk about this. What, what message did you take away from that event? Well, Interesting listening to Cammy Badenock, who was in conversation with Paul Goodman from Conservative Home, about the contents of this strategy, the plan of action. And I think there were a few things where she was definitely doing a lot of almost, you know, rebutting some of the, the complaints about the report at the time, so the initial race disparity report, and saying that she had been, I think, taken aback to some degree by how much criticism it received. And one of the things she did when she was doing the initial report was set up a board with lots of figures from various ethnic minorities, thinking that that would allow you to have this conversation. And it, she, she said that she found that that didn't actually stop people from saying this report is racist and, and so forth. I think that going forward, I think she was interesting in terms of a few things on education. So she was talking about how, you know, one of those things people say, you know, you, you need to decolonize the curriculum. She was quite clear that she doesn't think that that can be done because she doesn't think the curriculum is colonized in the first place. And instead, actually was arguing that if you if you work instead of improving it to be a knowledge rich curriculum, which is, you know, really broad in what it takes in in terms of British history. Actually, that's the best way to resolve it, because really British history is everyone's history. And then I think um, as you touched on some of the other interventions, I think it was also interesting was just looking at probably how she's depicted. I think she was saying that often she feels as though she is one of the 
few Tories, and this was put to her by Paul Goodman, you know, there's lots of people in the Tory party who don't really want to talk about these topics. Um, and it might be because they don't think they have enough knowledge of it, enough personal experience, or they're just quite scared of how angry the debate can get. And she was saying she actually does makes very few interventions on, on race issues in the Commons, but when she does, she'll often have constituents be saying, you know, why are you focusing on this and not potholes? You know, like I said, you should be focusing on things that affect me more. But I think that... She said that she feels that she needs to be the one pushing it because it's been something she's been interested in for so long. It's not the thing that dominates her policy agenda most, but given there's often been a reluctance to go near these issues, she's developed a thick skin and happy to keep going at it, which gives us a sign, I think, of how the the debate and the conversation will keep going. Thank you, Katie, and thank you, Kate, and thank you for listening. That was Coffee House Shots on today, Thursday, the 17th of March. And we'd like very much like to invite you to join us on the 23rd of March in the evening after the Rishi Sunak Spring Statement, where we'll be having a special live edition of Coffee House Shots, where you get not only the three of us, but also Fraser Nelson, the editor of The Spectator. And it should be great fun. It's at the Emmanuel Centre. And if you to get tickets, you can go to spectator.co.uk forward slash spring or get in touch with Max Jeffries. Thank you so much. (laughs) 